Well, take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, the second chapter. We began this passage in verses 1 to 3 a few weeks ago, and, and frankly, we got through one verse. So we're going to come back and, and finish up these first three verses, Lord willing, in Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, though, is really the first part of a bigger section that extends from verses 1 all the way through verse 10, and I think it's important to hear the whole thing and to have that in our minds and hearts as we begin looking through the, the, um, the, the, the verses as parts that make up the whole. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you were formerly, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world." according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We uh, live in a day, it's no surprise to anyone, that is obsessed with classifying people, with putting people in categories and and assessing them according to certain criteria. For example, people are classified by race. There's white and brown and black, etc. People classify each other by the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. People classify people by tall and short, by young and old, by athletic, by unathletic, by cool and by uncool. We can go on and on. That's how people tend to look at each other. It's how they assess each other, size up each other, put each other in manageable categories and boxes. How does God look at people? What's his assessment when he looks down at this mass of humanity walking around on the planet. From God's perspective, there are really only two all-encompassing categories of people. We understand these categories or these classes of folks as saved and unsaved or redeemed and unredeemed or another synonym, regenerate and unregenerate. In the passage before us, we see them as dead and alive. Paul speaks of the way Christians used to be before their conversion, their their life B.C., before Christ. In fact, we've we've looked at this this section and and entitled Life B.C., B.C., before Christ. We usually look at the date on the calendar as A.D. or B.C., but what is our life before Christ? Well, let me review a little bit, looking at verse 1 that we looked at last week. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays out these critical certainties about life and death, about living and the dead, that are kind of surprising. We actually likened it to the modern obsession with zombies. The idea of a zombie is the living dead, someone who is dead but still acts like they're alive. And that is exactly what Paul describes here, not in a horror movie kind of sense, but in a spiritual sense. This is, in fact, a compact curriculum on ontology, that's the understanding of our being, 
and also on soteriology, our understanding of salvation and coming to life in Christ. That is, Paul defines for us what life really is and how to understand eternal salvation and the salvation that God has provided for those who are outside of Christ. Said another way, the verses before us define a biblical anthropology. Now, that's a big word that means the study of man. What is man really like? But the place Paul begins is not where you might think. It's in a dark, dark place. It's universally dark. It's a universally dark reality for everyone. Paul kind of turns the quilt around and shows us the backside of the stitching and of the quilt. He reveals to us the stark reality of our sinful existence. Said very simply, before coming to Christ, when you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, every person in existence is spiritually dead. And the spiritual death is because of sin. Paul tells us that unbelievers are the walking dead, spiritual zombies, as it were. And he starts here in the next chapter and a half of talking about salvation because if we understand how bad our condition is, then the gospel, which is good news, becomes truly news that's good. Why does he start here? Well, one of the most useful tools, as we looked at in our first study of this passage, that Satan possesses is convincing us that sin, sin's not that big a deal. It's not that big a problem. Oh, it may be something we do occasionally, but it's not characteristic of us. However, if you, if you minimize sin, if you underestimate sin, if you depersonalize sin, see it in others and not yourself, or if you stratify sin as worse in others than it is in yourself, let me just suggest you will never, according to Paul, never understand the glory and the wonder of salvation. Jesus describes this in terms of debt. One who is forgiven much understands the the burden of that debt being relieved from his ledger. We have a debt, as the song goes, we could never pay to God. So Paul begins there in talking about salvation in these next 10 verses. All unbelievers are outside Christ, outside of grace, outside of true and eternal blessing. Oh, they may enjoy certain benefits in this life, but they don't last. As we learned in our study of Ecclesiastes, it's like juicy fruit, gum. Oh, you can chew on it for a minute, and it tastes wonderful for about 30 seconds, right? And then juicy fruit always gives you this nasty taste in your mouth and then you either have to spit it out or put more in. And that's an apt description of what Solomon says this life is without God. You have to keep propping up your pleasures to keep them going because there's nothing eternally satisfying. And this passage tells us that you're just trying to prop up your deadness. So in verses 1 to 3... Before Paul talks about the believer's life and condition in Christ, he talks about our condition outside of Christ or before Christ. All unbelievers, as I said, are spiritually dead, living under the power and the influence of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And that makes them by nature people living under God's rightful and expected wrath. So as Paul shifts our focus and gives us this view of life BC, he, he, he pulls back and he gives us two broad stroke pictures. One, rather I should say broad, and one narrow. One is a wide angle view, that's verse one, and then in verses two and three, he zooms the camera in and gives us the detail of that condition. Two pictures of life before Christ. You can say say a wide-angle picture and a very specific, narrow picture. This is truly the life of the living dead. Now, we've already looked at this first picture, the wide-angle picture. Let me just review that for us. The state of the unbeliever's condition. 
spiritually dead in sin. The state of the unbeliever's condition. This is just the the raw fact of it, the general statement about it. He says in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice the past tense. He's speaking to believers and he's showing them what their life was like before Christ. And as we've discussed over and over and over and over and over and over, the most important concept when understanding and interpreting the Bible is the idea of context. The verses immediately preceding chapter 2 give us an on-ramp into understanding verse 1 of chapter 2. Remember, in the original writing of the book of Ephesians, there there were no chapter divisions. And this would have been more apparent even without, you know, chapter 2 and the numbers starting over. Paul focuses on the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead back in verse 20 of chapter 1. He speaks of this power of God, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's kind of the note, the pedal tone, this consistent chord that goes all the way through chapter 3. God raised Jesus from the dead, and that becomes paradigmatic or a pattern or or a, 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 a lasting lesson for what he not only did in Christ physically and literally, but what he does for us spiritually and will do for us, as we'll see later in the book, physically in our own resurrection. The transition here is from God raising Jesus to life from the dead to God raising the readers, the Ephesians, as Christians from unchristians, from death to life. Notice verse 1 and verse 5 in chapter 2. In verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Look down at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see that that theme, that resurrection from death to life that he keeps coming back to? The sandwich tells us that Paul begins his disclosure about an unbeliever's condition, our condition before we knew Christ, that he intends to contrast with God's grace. And he takes this divinely inspired detour in these first three verses to talk about our spiritual death before our rebirth in Christ. Now, the Greek grammar here is, is remarkable. The main subject and the main verb don't show up until verses 5 and 6. Everything before that is put together with participles and prepositions that are all introductory to this main verb in chapter 5. I mean, excuse me, in verse 5, which is that God made us alive together with Christ. It's the main subject and the main verb. Everything before that leans up to that significant statement, which we'll we'll get to in our next study. So if you read verses 2 and 3, you discover that those outside of Christ are obviously not physically dead, but they are called dead. How do we know they're not physically dead? Because the next two verses tell us how they live. We'll come back to that in just a moment. This deadness is described with two words, trespasses and sins. That's the the reason for our deadness. That's what keeps us in the grave. That's what separates us. And the, the summary of deadness is really the inability to respond to God. Unable to communicate with God. Unable to act or change anything. Ultimately unable and impotent to get to God because of our spiritual deadness. We're unable to change our standing as children of wrath. Unresponsive to God's revelation of his son in his word. So that's just a statement. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And if you want to know more about that, you can go listen to the the previous sermon on that. We we delved into that with some depth. But now we want to go to the, the more narrow angle of what this is. The details of the unbeliever's condition. Paul says you're dead in your sins, but now he says, let me tell you what I mean by that. He doesn't leave us to wonder and to guess the details of the unbeliever's condition irrepressibly alive to sinful influences. Irrepressibly alive to sinful influences. Where we're spiritually dead in sin, we are uncontrollably influenced by 
these sinful influences that we find ourselves fighting against and swimming upstream in our growth and sanctification as Christians. Verse 1 is the wide-angle view, and now verses 2 and 3 show us the zoomed-in focus. We're shown the details of our spiritual deadness, what it really means. And even though unbelievers are spiritually dead, they are irrepressibly alive to three specific influences. And we're going to break that down into three subcategories or subpoints under this number two. First of all, the first influence is an unbeliever is alive to a godless worldview, living according to a godless worldview. He just said, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Here's the picture of the living dead, the walking dead. Now, I said that we're, we're called spiritually dead before our coming to Christ, but we're very much alive to certain things. What, what are we alive to in which you formerly walked? That word walked is an interesting concept. The idea of walking is a euphemism for living. Notice how Paul uses this picture in Ephesians. Let's just have a little, little Bible study and a little fun with this, okay? Here in chapter 2, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Look down at chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, what? Walk in them. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4, verse 17. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. A lot of walking here, right? Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 5, 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in Ephesians 5.15, Therefore, be careful how you what? Walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Here's the point. Paul uses the idea of walking over and over to tell us that walking is living. So walking is living. So he says, you lived, you walked according to the course of this world. What does that mean? An unbeliever, without life in Christ, walks according to the world's values, lives according to the world's morals, lives according to the world's religions. In other words, their worldview is contained by what's put into it by the world. One of our guides that we have continually leaned on, and I, I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear his name a lot. He's been such a mentor to me through his commentary. Harold Honer writes this. Words, the, uh, uh, the unregenerate is found here, conforming to the standards of the present world order. They go along with what is fashionable and acceptable and are not out of step with the rest of the world. Hence, they embrace the temporal values. They are concerned only with activities and values of the present age and, here it is, are not concerned with God and eternal values or with the judgment to come, end quote. I think that's a good summary. It's not that they don't think spiritual thoughts or religious thoughts or eternal thoughts or thoughts of gravity, it's that all of those are informed by the way the world thinks. It's, it's intuition and it's groupthink. This word, world, this word world here is an interesting one. It's used, interestingly, 186 times in the Greek New Testament. It's the word cosmos. And interestingly, almost every single time the word cosmos or world is used, it has an evil connotation. We live in a sin-stained world that influences us. That's the point. Listen to how Paul described this to the Galatians. Grace to you 
Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might, listen, rescue us from this present evil age, the cosmos, according to the will of God and Father. So God sent Jesus to rescue us from this present evil evil age. That's a description of the world, of the cosmos. Kent Hughes describes it like this. Those without Christ are captive to the social and value system of this present evil age, which is hostile to Christ. They are willing slaves to the pop culture of the media, the group think of the talk shows, the post-Christian mores, the man-centered religious fads, The spiritually dead are dominated by the world, end quote. Where does this show up? I think it's interesting to to notice this and then to make sure that as believers, we are cutting off those spiritual influences, those, those hoses that are directing worldly thoughts into our own minds. Unbelievers are unwittingly influenced by politics. Saying that, I'm amazed how politics can influence my own emotions and worldview. But we have a king who's superior to any president. We have a kingdom that's superior to any government. They're also influenced by the news cycles and the pundits. You know, do you, can I ask you a question just doing some evaluation looking at how we're supposed to be alive and not dead different than our previous lives as unbelievers it shouldn't surprise us that the pundits on the news cycles get so upset and animated about the direction and condition of things in the government and in the world that, that shouldn't surprise us what should surprise us is that we get sucked into that as believers because when we do and our emotions get waylaid by that, our hope gets disconnected from the future hope of Christ. Wait till we get to chapter three. There is a good and future hope coming for the believer. If we get dissuaded from believing what we know to be true, then we are acting like we were when we were dead. Unbelievers are unwittingly influenced by politics, the news cycles, and pundits. How about by, by, by music and pop culture? It's amazing how music and pop culture can seep into our minds and begin to have us doubt things that we know to be true because that's, those are the things that are the rallying points, the pep rallies of affections for an unbelieving mind, those who are dead And then we have the influence of all of those things that go into a person's mind and that person influences an unbeliever. There's there's, there's this um, peer pressure, this this mutual influence society of unbelievers. And as a believer, we're going to see beginning in verse 4, as believers, we should be different than that, have different hopes, different morals, different values, different worldview. Politics, news cycles, pundits, music, pop culture, others. That's how an unbeliever decides their decisions. But it gets worse. A second influence that an unbeliever is alive to is Satan himself, living according to a satanic agenda. There's a second kata, a second according to here. There'll be a third one inferred in the next phrase. We also are living according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Let me just say from the very beginning, this is only a slight preview 
Because in chapter 6, Paul's going to come back, and we're going to spend several weeks going through the satanic agenda and the demonic agenda that affects not only our world, but, but is actually attacking us as believers. But this is just a quick preview of what we're going to be studying later in the book. This is indicative of an unbeliever. They're walking according to Satan's agenda. He's the second prepositional phrase here, according to, it's the Greek kata, to uh, describe our pre-conversion lives. And not only does this world exert unrelenting influence on an unbeliever, on the life, on the worldview, but so does the devil himself. So does Satan himself. Satan is called many things in in the Bible and many things in the New Testament. Here he's called the prince of the power of the air. Interesting description. You you might be curious to know that in chapter 4, verse 27, and in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul will call him the devil. And in chapter 6, verse 16, Paul will call him the evil one. All same descriptions of the same entity. Here he's seen as the ruler or the authority in the realm called the air. What is this? Let me just say a few things. We're going to have a a full course on demonology and Satanology when we get to chapter 6. But just remember a few things about Satan. Satan is not the bad God. You have the good God who's God and the bad God who's Satan. Sometimes we think of that, that they're on kind of equal terms. Satan is just an angel. He is just a created being. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He can't be everywhere at one time. He may be fast, but he can't be everywhere at one time. He is what we call in in theology a localized entity. He can only be at one place at one time. Now, he's very prominent in his influence, and he has lots of helpers. Lots of demons, we'll see those in chapter, chapter 6. There are actually classifications and descriptions and titles given to them. But just remember who we're dealing with. He is not on God's level. If you remember back in Job uh, chapters 1 and 2, for Satan to actually afflict Job, he has to get permission from God. So even Satan's rule is still under the mighty hand and sovereign rule of God Almighty. Here he's seen as the ruler or the authority, the prince. Where? This is interesting. In a realm called the air, on air in the Greek, it's it's an interesting concept that, that draws off the first century understanding of the cosmos, of what's going on in the earth and in the in the literal atmosphere all the way up to the moon. In the first century, Aner, or the air here, described the space between the earth and the moon. It's the realm of, of, of what is real yet unseen, where the devil and demons and angels reside and operate. C- can, I, can I just ask you a simple question? Do you believe in the devil and his demons? Do you you believe in angels? Do you believe in spiritual powers that you cannot see, but you can perceive their influence? Jesus described things that are real that you can see the influence of or feel the influence of, but you can't see in John chapter 3 when he said, think of the wind like like the work of God. You don't see the wind, but you see it moving the leaves. You can see its effect. I just think it's interesting. I, I, I have my, my cell phone here. This, I've used this illustration before because I just can't let it go. This is an amazing piece of technology. Do you know how many countless cell phone signals are, are in this room right now? All of yours are. I hope you don't use them right now, but... If someone wanted to call you, that signal could find your device in this room right now. There is so much happening in here. Ask Steve and Scott and Aaron. Sometimes we're dealing with interference with our microphones because there's so much going on in the air that you can't see. But with the right understanding, you can know that it's real. 
please don't call me right now and, and don't text me. But if you were to do that, I would know that there's a signal in here that I can't see right now, but I can see the effects of it if it showed up. Paul is saying here, there are effects of the devil's rule in the world and the devil's rule in an unbeliever's life that you cannot see with your eyes, but you can sense by what happens. This satanic influence is connected to the influence of the world, our first point, because the world is controlled by the devil. So what does this influence look like? I said you could see the, inf- the influence, but maybe not the actual nexus of it. Paul explained this clearly to the Corinthians. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, verse 3, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, so now he's talking about the dead, the same people we're talking about in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. In whose case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds, we'll come back to that in a moment, of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We we tend to think of Satan as red-faced, with horns coming out of his head, who has ugly, monstrous followers. This is what Hollywood tells us Satan is like. You know, 2 Corinthians 11 says that's, that's actually not how he comes. Satan comes as an angel of light. He doesn't look scary and ugly. He looks beautiful and inviting and makes us choose the counterfeit over the substance. He keeps people from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Christ. That's what he does. His main, Satan's main objective is not to scare you. It's to deceive you. It's to have you see things of importance that outweigh the glory of God in his word. We don't have to guess at his schemes, at his specifics, by the way. In giving the believer insight into how to fight the schemes of the devil, I love how the King James says, the wiles of the devil. In chapter 6, listen to this. We find out a little bit about how Satan works by looking ahead in chapter 6. Finally, brethren, verse 10 Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. We are in a fight with the enemy so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So if we want to know how Satan works, Paul Paul outlines it for us. So let's import what's coming ahead into how we're thinking about the devil and his minions right now. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes, the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He's the prince of the power of the the air. But against rulers, that's the same word used here, he's the prince of the power of the air, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, therefore take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Okay? So how does that mean? Now, when Paul tells us how to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, we know what his schemes are. It's a little preview. We'll spend a lot of time here in a few months or so. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Girding your loins with truth. We'll study this when we get this. This was, this was taking your tunic. You would have a, a tunic that went usually down at least below your knees to keep the dust off your, uh, off your legs. And to, when you were doing something athletic or in battle, you would pull the full four corners of your tunic up under your, your belt and cinch it down, girding your loins with truth. If we're having to gird our loins with truth, we know that Satan lies against God's truth in Scripture. There's one of his schemes. Satan lies against God's truth in Scripture. 
he, either, he uses, typically uses the word and and but. Oh, I know the Bible says that and the Book of Mormon and the Bhagavad Gita and Islam and, or even what the Catholic Church is, and the fathers and the councils. But there's also a threatening word, and that's the word but. Well, I know the Bible says that but it can't mean what it says. Satan lies against God's truth in Scripture. He also says, and having put on the breastplate, control that would, that would protect your vital organs, of righteousness, Satan fills your environment and the environment of unbelievers with unrighteousness from which we need to protect ourselves. This is a godless, moralless, biblically void world against which we have to live righteously in an unrighteous environment. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, not just the gospel, the gospel of peace. Satan wants to make God out to be an enemy and keep and add to fighting with him. The gospel establishes the peace of God with us and it allows us us to dispense the peace of God. If God is perceived as an enemy, as unholy, as unlike he's presented in the scriptures, then Satan has our minds. He wants to make God out to be an enemy and keep us at enmity with him. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is interesting. You hold up a shield that's comprised of faith that extinguishes flaming arrows that are coming at you. What arrows is Satan flinging? He's flinging arrows of doubt. The shield of faith. Believing versus unbelieving. Satan wants to fill the mind with doubts about God and his truth. Verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation. Satan wants to attack the thinking. That's where your, your mind is, where you think, in ways that make the gospel untenable. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Satan wants us to fight God and disbelieve the truthfulness of Scripture. He also wants us to fight Him with anything other than scripture. We'll come back to this when we get to study this, but when Jesus fought the devil, he used scripture. So the sword of the spirit is the word of God. That's how we fight the influence of the devil because he fights us with undermining scripture. And then he closes up in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, at all, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Satan wants prayer to be non-existent. Because if he can keep us, dissuade us from praying as a believer, he'll rob us of our intimacy with God. And if he can keep an unbeliever from accessing God in prayer and asking for mercy, as we'll see in, in the coming weeks in verses four and following, then you're kept from salvation. By the way, there's something important to notice here from Paul's word choices. And it's an important key to understanding this satanic influence. Notice Paul uses the term sons of what? Disobedience. We are sons of disobedience, which means that Satan's power is ultimately wielded over an unbeliever by keeping them disobedient to God through his word. He uses two different words here in verses 2 and 3, which are, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but he uses sons here, huias, and he uses children, tekna, in the next phrase. Both offspring, but both different nuances. Sons has to do with with being uh, uh, in the likeness of your father. It's a specific term. Children is more generic and has to do with inheritance, which is exactly what Paul refers to in verse 3. One more thing about Satan's influence over the unbeliever in our own day. 
and I don't mean to pick any fights here. I really just, <clears throat> we can't ignore this. Our amillennial friends, and I, I mean that very sincerely, friends who believe that we're in the millennium right now, that there will not be a thousand-year reign of Christ, um, believe that we're living in the millennial kingdom right now, but if that's so, what do we do with John's words that Satan will be bound during that thousand-year reign? And how do we compare that now? If this is the millennium and Satan is alive at work in the sons of disobedience and he's bound, how do we reconcile all that? Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, John says, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the, 20, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So uh, I just ask a question, of, and I really mean they are my friends, of my amillennial friends. If, say, if this is the millennium, then Satan must be bound. How can he be bound and also have this kind of influence over people? Well, their answer goes like this. Um, one, of a, one of their leading theologians, let me quote him, says this, quote, something happens to Satan's ability to keep the nations of the earth blinded from seeing who God is. And what, is the, what the gospel means for them? As a result of Christ's finished work in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, in ascending to the Father, and in being crowned on the throne of glory, listen, Satan has lost his power to deceive the untold millions of pagans whom he formerly kept blinded to God's saving truth. I just would ask, how, how is this possible with the fastest growing religion in the world being Islam? This hardly seems demonstrable with so many nations still under pagan religions and the fastest religion being Islam. So to say, well, that just means that Satan lost his ability to deceive the nations seems hardly tenable. So I'm not picking any fight with anyone except to say, Satan is alive and well. He is not bound, but he will be bound one day in a literal thousand-year reign. And we'll come back to that later in Ephesians. And it gets worse. You have the world who's against you. You have the devil who's against you. Not only that, third influence a believer is alive to, he's living according to an ungodly nature or mind and flesh. <laughs> You're the problem as an unbeliever. You're your own problem. There's an old Christian song that says, I'm running from the clothes I'm wearing. That's a good picture. Among them too, we, now I don't want to make too much of this, but Paul says we, he has been saying you, he's used you twice, and now he says we. I think he's saying we as Jews, you as Gentiles. Now he's grouping everybody together and saying all of us. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So far, we've seen the influence exerted on an unbeliever from the outside in. Now we see that there's influence from the inside out. The point is, with the you and the we, Paul is strategically weaving together these two pronouns, you and we, it's literally y'all and us, to show that everyone, as an unbeliever, is in the same condition of rebellion against God. Apart from Christ, apart from his salvation, an unbeliever's life is lived according to, look at what it says here, fleshly desires and fleshly thinking. Desires of the mind, desires of the flesh. This influences what you feel and how you think as an unbeliever. Which also tells us that as a believer, we are sanctified by changing our affections and changing our thinking. 
As we're going to discover in the rest of our study of Ephesians, new life in Christ creates new circuits of affections and desires that rewire around these old desires in our heart, but they're not totally eliminated and can be reconnected to. That's what sanctification is all about. Yielding to the influence of Christ and his word instead of the old influences listed here. Desires come from inside and they come from our thinking. Now these desires come in many expressions, but the Apostle John, I think, gives us a summary and an outline in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, he's being comprehensive, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires that your physical body gender up, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that's desires to want more, materialism and covening, and the boastful pride of life, wanting to be loved and known is not from the Father, but it's from the world. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who used to say to us as men, men, he would quote this verse and he would say, I just want to warn you now, the rest of your life, you have to watch out for the gold, the glory, and the girls. Now, if you're a girl, you can say the guys. It works with a G there too. It's actually a really good little device to remember. The gold, the glory, and the girls. Pride, less the flesh, less the eyes, and pride of life. Paul made this exact distinction to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out these desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Even after we come to Christ, we're still fighting these old circuits that are still there. What do you mean, Paul? If you're led by the spirit, you're not under law. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, it's not comprehensive, of which I forewarn you and have also forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are indicatives of being dead, but the fruit of the Spirit being alive, we start looking at next week, is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against these things, such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Notice he says the desires of the mind. The mind is where this battle is fought. And Paul's graphic description of the life of an unbeliever climaxes with this assessment that we as unbelievers, all unbelievers are children of wrath, inheritors of God's coming wrath, of true and eternal hell. The only hope is God's rescue which he talks about in verse 5 even when we were dead in our transgressions God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved similarly to the Colossians Paul says in chapter 1 verse 21 Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Do you understand? If we are dead in sins, why predestination and election have to be true? 
No one in this state wakes up and says, oh, I think I'll choose God today over my own deadness. You, you, you can't. Just a few takeaways. Can I ask you to be certain you're alive? Are you certain you're alive? Next week, we're going to look at verse 4. God, because of his character, verse 5, made us alive. Are, are, are you certain you're a believer? Are you dominated by the influence of the world, by the direction of Satan, and by your own thinking and flesh? If not, wow, what a, what a great day to be at church and to hear Paul say, you can be rescued from yourself, from the devil, and from this world. If you'd like to talk about that, our prayer room will be open in a minute. We'd love to discuss eternity with you. Secondly, strive to make your spiritual past, your spiritual past. <laughs> that makes sense. If this is the way we were, let's make sure it's the way we were and not the way we are. This is sanctification. The, the, the tenses makes, make a lot of importance here. You were dead. Now you're alive. Live like you are. Thirdly, know your enemies. Satan, self, and a sinful world. Know your enemies. Paul will tell us in chapter 6 to be aware of the schemes of the devil. Be aware of the schemes of the world. Be aware of the schemes in your own heart. John Owen says, strive to know what associates in your heart Satan has. But can I add one more fourth little takeaway here? This has convicted me in, in studying this for the last few weeks. Love your enemies. You know, we see unbelievers, we see news cycles and wicked people in the world, and it's easy to think of the mission field as our enemies instead of as our mission field. They're dead. <laughs> they can't help it. But we have the help they need. These may be what you perceive as your enemies at work, on the news, in the political offices, in your neighborhoods. Don't turn the mission field into your opposition. They're dead and we have words of life. This should motivate our evangelism and put our confidence in the message of the gospel, not in our own persuasion.